do you decide what is true? How do you make that determination? Because we all have to determine what things are true and what things are false. It's a little more important than the true false test we took in high school. So how do you decide what is true? I've heard people say your truth, my truth, makes me wonder whose truth are we talking about here? Well, how do you decide what is true? Are you allowed to have your own truth? Am I allowed to have my own truth? Is my neighbor allowed to have his or her own truth? How do you decide what is true? Well, this is Pastor Rick Stevens, and I want to welcome you to the program today. This is Faith Is, where we help each other develop confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Because here we say faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And so we work in that direction. We challenge each other. We stretch each other's thinking. And most of all, we all want to grow in God's direction so we can have an increasing confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, a real church with really good people. And I think you would enjoy it if you're ever in our neighborhood. And I want to give a shout out to all of our church people who are supportive of this initiative that we try to do every week to, to help you and to help all of us grow in God's direction. I appreciate their support, and I know you do too. I just want to make sure we all remember to give them that round of applause, shall we speak, or shall we say every week on the program to make sure we don't overlook their contribution to this, because I really do appreciate that. So let's talk about this business of truth. You know, people say, well, that's my truth. Or someone might object to something that you or I say, and they might say to us, well, that's your truth. Well, whose truth is really the truth? And I think the use of that word has really gotten our attention and really hurt our ability to evaluate that which is true. Because I want to be fair here that a lot of times the way people use that word truth, they're really talking about their opinion. And, and I want to be respectful and allow you and everybody else to have their opinion. Now, their opinion about something could be right and it could be wrong, but they're still allowed to have their perspective. And, and that's what I think is going on with much of the use of the word truth. It's really more about perspective than about truth. However, when we use that word truth rather than my perspective or my opinion, it changes everything because there can't be a variety of perspectives that are all true. And when we change the meaning of the word truth, it really changes everything because we have nothing then to rely on if, if anybody's opinion or anybody's perspective can be described as the truth, then we can never really arrive at some objective concept or idea, decision that is the truth. And so we've, we've got to guard against that, and we've got to challenge ourselves on that, and we've got to ask ourselves, how do we decide what is true? What is our measurement for what is true? How do we make decisions on things? And like I said, most of the time it's people's opinions. So 
So if I were to ask someone, and I have occasionally, I don't do this very much because it's just not necessary or important to me, I might ask them, which is better, Ford or Chevy? Well, that's been a long, long running debate. And when I ask someone that, it's usually based on their opinion, their preference. And so they will describe to me why they like Ford or why they like Chevy better. Maybe they would say one rides better. Or maybe someone would say one lasts longer. I, I don't know. It could be a variety of things. And I never really quite know, you know, the, all that they're thinking of because they're just giving me their opinion. Now, it's not very often, but it might happen occasionally that someone would, would represent an objective perspective, or they might quote a study that evaluated them. But most of the time, there's not some independent objective measure that they're talking about. Most of the time, it's their opinion. I respect that. I appreciate that. I ask them, what do you think? What's the best car, Ford or Chevy? And so they they might tell me, and uh, you can get some pretty robust conversations, but if you get two people together and one likes Ford and one likes Chevy, and that can be all kinds of interesting fun, try it sometime. So I, I take all of their input into consideration if I'm trying to decide which car to buy, which is the better car. And, and I evaluate that and, and I understand they've had experience that I haven't had and I respect that. But I also recognize that, that if they want to call that their truth, that's really their opinion because they haven't done the hard work. They probably wouldn't be equipped to do the hard work of an objective analysis over time to decide which one is better and then to give me an answer. And even then it might not be entirely objective because they might have to make some decisions along the way and boy, it gets messy all the time, doesn't it? Well, then if I'm trying to decide between a Ford or a Chevy, I have to be honest with myself and, and take into consideration that, well, when I was growing up, the first car I can remember being introduced to was a Ford. I remember, and I don't know why I remember this more than anything else, but I remember my grandfather bought a couple of Fords that I was aware of when he bought new cars. I don't remember how close together they were. It seemed like Therefore, when I became aware of it, that he bought a new car and then a couple of years later bought another new car, traded the other one off. I, that was a little more common in those days than it is now, but still people do that. But the two of the cars that I remember were Fords. Now, I don't know why he picked a Ford instead of a Chevy. I never thought to ask if one was better than the other. It didn't occur to me because I was a kid. You don't think about all those kind of things. Maybe he bought the Ford because he knew the dealer. We lived uh, near a small town and maybe he knew the people there. He'd lived there a lot longer than I had because I was pretty young and maybe he knew the dealer. And so that's why he went to the Ford dealer. I don't even remember if there was a Chevy dealer around. There might've been one close by. I just don't know. Could have been that that was the most convenient. I don't know. Maybe he knew the salesperson that he had worked with. Maybe he had bought more cars than the two I remember. And maybe he had confidence in the salesperson and that he thought they would treat the, him right in terms of the price and the service and all of that. And so that's what he got. Well, I have to be honest that that influences me when I think about which car is better, Ford or Chevy. Uh, even if I try to resist that, I, I don't think I can totally get away from that. And I have to, to keep that in mind. How do I decide what's true? How do I make the right kind of decision? How do I know what's true? Is it Ford? the better car or Chevy, the better car. 
And I can hear almost hear some of you saying, well, ask me, I'll tell you, I, I, I wish I could, I get that. But we need to think about that because car decisions are one thing and they're important, I, I get that, but, but life decisions are a lot more important. And so how do you decide what is true? It's one thing to believe someone is telling you the truth when they tell you that a Chevy is better than a Ford or a Ford's better than a Chevy. It's another thing when it comes to the significant issues of life, like who will I trust my life to and other things. So we want to think about that. How do we decide that which is true? Because there was a, there was a man in the Bible, the Bible tells us the story of a man who had to decide what to believe. We generally refer to him as Doubting Thomas. And as soon as I say that, some of you remember the story. I don't know if we should call him Doubting Thomas. Maybe we should call him Convinced Thomas or Believing Thomas because he really was more characterized by his belief than by his doubt. He was characterized more that he was convinced than that he was unconvinced because his, his question lasted just for a few days. His conviction lasted much longer. His belief stuck. So let's read the story and talk about that. And then really we want to get to what are the implications for us when we have to decide what is true and who will we trust. And it's not about opinion at that point. It's about reality. And it's not about my preference or your preference or what we want to be true. It's about, can we come to grips with something that really is true? And what does that mean for us and for our lives? Because when we make life decisions like that, they do have implications. And so we're going to talk about the implications and, and discuss some of them for our time because it had implications for Thomas. And then what we realize is the truth has huge implications for us too. So let's look at his story. His story comes from John chapter 20. And it takes place, just to set the scene, it takes place on that first Easter Sunday, but it's in the evening now. The events of Easter, the resurrection, the discovery of the empty tomb, that took place in the morning. And then this was in the evening of that first day, as the chapter in John tells us. And so we pick it up there, and we get the scene set on that evening, and then events unfold pretty quickly in these few verses. Starting in John chapter 20, verse 19, I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible because that's just the one that helps me, and I hope it helps you. John chapter 20, verse 19. When it was the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. 
Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You see, we have to make a decision about what we believe is true, and that's the beginning of this concept of belief. It's not all there is to it, but it's the beginning, and so we want to concentrate on that today and, and talk about how Thomas came to believe and, and the, some of the implications of belief for us, particularly the implications if we choose to believe that Jesus is our Lord and God. So it's the first Sunday of the, of the week. It's the same Sunday same first day of the week when Jesus rose from the tomb, and they're gathered together in a room. It's not surprising that they had gathered and stayed there together, because typically they, they in their tradition, the Jewish tradition of the time, would observe seven days of mourning after the death of someone close to them. So they would have been observing those seven days of mourning or anticipated beginning them, and then they hear the resurrection news, and that surely sent them for a loop. They didn't quite know what to think. The Bible says that the door was locked because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. Well, that's probably for good reason. They didn't know what was going to be happening because nobody had ever gone down this road before. This was totally foreign territory to everyone. And so they were protecting themselves, taking necessary precautions, gathering together, talking it over, trying to process everything. The doors closed. And Jesus came and stood among them. In spite of the door being locked, he came and stood among them. Now, a lot of times people spend a lot of energy describing the way Jesus appeared. And, and frankly, the text doesn't tell us. It just says, there he was. So we really don't know what happened. You know, if you want to use your imagination, I guess you could think of beam me up, Scotty, and Jesus just beamed into the room. I don't think that's irreligious or sacrilegious or or irreverent to think about those kind of things. But I somehow, I can't imagine that God, depending on that kind of mechanism that's described in that uh, fictional story. But in whatever way, the key to this is that the closed door was not an obstacle for Jesus. He was there among them. He was with them. And he greets them by saying, peace be with you. That's a common greeting of the day. It's common today for people to greet each other with, with um, greetings of a blessing of one kind or another. That, that, that greeting remains common among Jewish people today, where they will say something like, peace be with you. They often say it in Hebrew rather than English. It's common. I, I mean, I've never been so blessed in all my life as I was the week I spent in Cuba, because it was very common in Cuba for people to say, God bless you. Now, they said it in Spanish, and I learned that. And and I thought that was great. It wasn't part of my common custom, but we sometimes say to people, God bless you. Usually we say that after they sneeze, but we could say that more often. And it wouldn't be at all inappropriate for us to bless one another occasionally like that. We do that every week in our church services. I always give people an opportunity to extend to someone near them the peace of Christ, because that's what Jesus did here. And, and as we know, we, the church, are the extension of Jesus' ministry on earth, so I invite people to 
to bless one another with the peace of Christ. So here Jesus says to, to his fearful disciples, peace be with you. Now we're talking about peace a little bit more. We get into this later and we talk about the implications. So Jesus goes in there and he shows them his hands and his side, and they rejoice because if they had had any sense of doubt or wonder themselves of what was really going on, now here's Jesus, and they cannot deny it's him. Not that they wanted to, I'm not suggesting they wanted to, but it's just further validation of the events of that morning. Here they see Jesus himself, they see the evidence of crucifixion, so they know it was him, but here he is, whole, and then some, standing right before them. He continues and, and says to them again, peace be with you, and, and uh, again, repeating that traditional Jewish greeting, but also pushing back against their fear. And then he says some curious things here that, that don't often get looked at carefully, but I think we should look at them carefully. He says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, if you're familiar with the story of the Great Commission, then that kind of resonates because that's the idea behind the Great Commission. And some people have said that's in the Gospel of John, that's the Great Commission that John tells us just in that simple sentence. But that makes a lot of sense because we know that the church, the people of God, these disciples were the beginnings of all of that. We are the extension of the ministry of Jesus. I often say that the church is the visible presence of Jesus in the world, and it is. The people of God are the visible presence because we were sent to continue the mission of Jesus, and that's what it means here when he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. It's also interesting that this might not have been a surprise to them as much as we might think, because in the Jewish tradition, prophets appointed their successors. So here's Jesus appointing the people that would continue his mission, the successors to his mission. Then he says another statement that's really quite remarkable. Verse 22, after saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now there's all kinds of connection between the original language and this idea of breath or wind and, and that can be studied in relation to the Holy Spirit, it can be understood in fascinating ways relative to the day of Pentecost that we read about in the book of Acts. But here it's that he breathed on them. And, and you know, that we don't breathe on each other. You know, we'd say that's a little creepy. Well, what's he talking about here? Well, it reminds us, and, and the text doesn't say that they knew this, so it's not unlikely that they would have remembered this or made this connection, because they were familiar with the, with the Bible, with the, what we call the Old Testament. But there's a fascinating story, I just love this story, that reminds us of what was going on here, and that makes a connection so we can begin to understand what was going on here. And that's from Ezekiel chapter 37. And you may recognize that as dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones. Now hear the word of the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. It's the same idea. So, so let's take a look at what happened there in Ezekiel chapter 37. I want, to, I want to read that story again from the Christian Standard Bible, because it's so fascinating to think that this connection is made of what Jesus is doing for his disciples and what he's doing for us. 
that's very much parallel to this story of the dry bones. So in Ezekiel chapter 37, starting with verse 1, the hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by his spirit and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were a great many of them on the surface of the valley, and they were very dry. Then he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I replied, Lord God, only you know. He said to me, Prophesy concerning these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says to these bones. I will cause breath to enter you, and you will live. I will put tendons on you, make flesh grow on you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you so that you come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded. While I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. As I looked, tendons appeared on them, flesh grew, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. He said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to it, this is what the Lord God says, breath, come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. The breath entered them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Look how they say our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are cut off. Therefore, Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them, my people, and lead you into the land of Israel. You will know that I am the Lord, my people, when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. This is the declaration of the Lord. So imagine that room there when Jesus suddenly stands among them and he, he breathed on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So here's a group of disciples, and I don't want to make more of this than we should, but I think we can fairly acknowledge. Here's a group of confused disciples, absolutely devastated by the death of Jesus, and now their world is rocked even more by the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus comes along and says, out of all you've been through, receive the Holy Spirit. Or, and it's not at all doing violence to the understanding of what's going on here. Receive the breath of life, the breath of God in you. And so he, he says to them what the prophet in Ezekiel described about the valley of the dry bones. Come to life. Come to life and live. And they do. And you know the rest of the story. The world changes because of what those disciples did and how they lived their lives and made a huge difference in all of the world because they came to life. Well, then the next statement, or continuing the statement Jesus says, he says, receive the Holy Spirit, and he goes on to make a statement that really, really, really challenges us. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 
And so we have to take a breath and say, good grief, Jesus, we can understand the Holy Spirit and, and bringing people alive like the dry bones, the discouraged, the dead, dry bones of the valley. But now you say, what? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What in the world is going on with that? Well, the first thing we should acknowledge is that in the Gospel of Mark, it's very clearly stated, and Jesus does not at all question it, that only God can forgive sins. So we don't need to get trapped in thinking, uh-oh, what's going on here? So let's put that aside. So if only God can forgive sins, then surely we understand that Jesus is not here saying that suddenly he's giving us the authority of God himself. Uh, I don't know anybody who wants to go down that road, so let's not go down that road. Clearly, only God can forgive sins. But he does talk about how they, and he says, if you, so he's talking about those people, and he's not saying if you individually. We often hear the word you used individually, so that we think that somebody who says you is talking to us as an individual. Here, this is a plural use of that, because he's talking to the group of disciples that were gathered there. It was all the people that were in the room, and we don't have a complete list of that. And he's saying to them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So what sense might that be? Well, one of the things that I think gets overlooked in, in the way we approach Christian faith and having confidence in God is we overlook the value and the, and frankly, to be honest, the power of our spiritual leaders of our spiritual friends who can say to us, no, you shouldn't be worried about that. There are sensitive people among us. You might be one, and you're always afraid that, that your sins are not forgiven. I grew up in a little bit of that kind of environment where there was a lot of, a lot of questioning, a lot of challenging. Are you sure that you have not sinned? Are you sure you're right with God today? Well, I didn't find that particularly helpful, and I thankfully survived that, and many of the things that those terrific people did kept me out of all kinds of trouble, and I'm grateful for that. But we don't often think about the power of assuring someone that God has forgiven their sins, and isn't that a proper role for the church, to be redemptive in that way and say to someone, because someone might say, well, pastor, if you knew what I had done, well, I don't know what you've done, but I know what Jesus did, and I know that there is forgiveness of sins. And so I can say to that person, there is forgiveness of sins. And so in that way, I can offer them release from that. And if I dare to say it the other way, then I do not offer them release from those sins, and I trap them in their own misunderstanding and misery. And so it's a powerful responsibility that the church has to help people come to grips with this whole concept of forgiveness of sins. And so we need to take that seriously. And if you struggle, if you wonder, well, I, I, I'm not sure, I, I think maybe I've sinned in a way God can't forgive, then it's the proper role for, a, for the church to help you sort your way through that and come to understand that the very fact that you're sensitive to that and aware of that is an indication that God is still working on you and with you and for you so that you can have the assurance of forgiveness and not find yourself trapped in that stuff. That's a very important concept.
very important. It doesn't mean that any individual or even the church has the power to forgive sins. That's not at all what's going on. I know of no, no serious person who would assert that because Jesus said it so clearly as recorded in the gospel of Mark, that only God can forgive sins. It was clearly the case there because it was used to validate the fact that Jesus himself was God. So let's not get confused by that. Well, then the story continues with the emphasis that we most often hear from this story on Thomas. And Thomas wasn't with them. He was someplace else. And they later said to him, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says something very significant. He says, I'm, I just won't believe that until I see and touch for myself. If I don't see and touch, I'll not believe. That is huge but it's also instructive. So in a minute, we're going to take a break. But while we're taking that break, I want you to, to give some thought to what is it that would convince you to believe? What is it that would convince you to understand that what God tells us is the truth? What is it that would convince you to follow Thomas's example? Because he later declared that Jesus was his Lord and God. What would convince you? Thomas is pretty clear. He's at least honest saying, I need to see and touch for myself. Are you honest enough to put out before God? Here's what would convince me because what happens a lot of times, and I don't want you to fall into this trap. People will, will say one thing, but then they have that satisfied and then they come up with another. And there's an endless, endless series of questions. They just demonstrate they don't want to be convinced. What will convince you? So while we take a break and while we ponder that, I want you to come to grips with that. What will convince you? And when we get back, we're going to talk about that. I hope you'll stay with us. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is. Join us in a minute. You've been in that situation. The person next to you is sniffling or worse yet, <coughs> coughing. Flu, cold, and coronaviruses are everywhere. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to reduce these threats with an invisible mask as an additional layer of protection? Sold by hundreds of pharmacists and medical doctors, our American-made povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray, Cofix RX, lasts for hours deactivating viruses and germs while protecting you from airborne pathogens that make us sick. America Out Loud listeners get 20% off. Use Cofix RX while in large groups, while traveling, or for any other type of high-risk situation as an additional layer of protection to help reduce your likelihood of catching a cold, the flu, or SARS-CoV-2 viruses. Right now, America Out Loud listeners get 20% off of all orders. Click our banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. silent voices be heard. It was the rallying call that started it all. It's a wide spectrum of programming, from world and political news to societal and cultural stories. Six amazing years of news blogs, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. 
your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Well, welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is where we challenge and stretch each other in God's direction, where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we've been challenging ourselves this week with the story of Thomas, a guy I like to call believing Thomas just to annoy people. Usually he's called doubting Thomas because he expressed his concerns about the reality of the resurrection. I think we could call him convinced Thomas because he came to be convinced. I think we could call him believing Thomas because he believed a lot more than he questioned. And Jesus indeed never challenged his ability to ask questions. Jesus, in fact, met him where his questions led him and answered them. So before the break, I ask you to think about what would convince you. What helps you understand what is the truth? Particularly, we need to think about that when it comes to Jesus. But the big picture of truth, God's truth, is all wrapped up in what we do with what we think about, what we believe about Jesus. So Thomas said, after he had been told by the other disciples that they had seen the Lord, Thomas said, I don't see, and if I don't touch, I'm not going to believe. I need to have that evidence. And really, we call him Doubting Thomas, but he wasn't asking for anything more than what the disciples had had when Jesus came and appeared among them. So one week later, sure enough, they're all together again, just like had been described earlier in the, in the story. The door was locked, then Jesus stands among them and says to them, peace be with you. And Thomas is there. And so Thomas now has his opportunity. He has spelled out what it would take for him to believe, and now he has the opportunity to actually act on that, on that challenge, on that information, on that, um, well, can Jesus satisfy my question? And so Jesus says to him, straight up, very clearly, verse 27, Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hands and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. So do you have enough confidence that, that God will come to you so that you don't have to be faithless, but that you can believe? Now, I don't know what it is that would take you, you to be convinced. I don't have any idea about that. But I ask you to think about that. And I ask you to consider what, what evidence would convince you. And I ask you to, sort of in a roundabout way, to not fall into the trap of just asking one question after another because you resist believing. And Thomas, he didn't fall into that trap. 
he accepted what Jesus said, and Jesus told him, don't be faithless, but believe. And so Thomas did. He actually, he actually believed. Isn't that remarkable? Good for Thomas. What about you? Will you actually believe? And Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands, reach out your hands and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And you would be one of those who have not seen and could yet believe. And you could be blessed because of that. Now, Thomas made his confession, my Lord and my God. And this was, this was not necessarily an unusual thing to say in those days. The emperor Domitian wanted people to address him as our Lord and God. So that idea was not unusual to them. It's a little bit unusual to us. We don't necessarily use those words, but we can make our confession that we believe and that we're going to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. We're going to not fall into the trap of faithlessness, but we're going to believe because that's essentially that's what Jesus said. Don't be faithless, believe. And we want to make sure that we don't fail to trust, but we want to trust. And notice there's a clear contrast between faithlessness and belief. It's one or the other. It's not, it's not something else. So you're going to have to come to grips. I'm going to have to come to grips. We all have to come to grips with with what do we do about Jesus? What do we believe about Jesus? It's not a time for your truth or my truth or somebody else's truth. It's time to recognize that there is something we call truth. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we have to come to grips with that. And the ultimate definer of truth is God himself. And Jesus presented himself when he said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we have no doubt that Jesus was the revelation of God, our challenge then is, are we going to believe? Are we going to trust him? Are we going to put our faith in him? And it makes all the difference in the world. It has all kinds of consequences for us in our day and in our time, because what we believe to be foundational truth makes all the difference in what we do and how we act as a people. Because if we believe and stake our lives on that which is false, we veer off the track and it can lead us in all kinds of odd directions. And so one of the things we need to think about is the implication of what this is all about. How, how does that affect my life and my thinking if I don't believe or if I do believe? And we live in an age when people have, too many people have, I'm not yet convinced it's a majority in our country, but boy, we're slipping fast. So many people have rejected Jesus as the source of truth. And it makes all the difference if he is who Thomas said he is, if he rose from the dead and now continues to live on, conquered death in a way no one ever had before, if he really is Lord and God, then we come to the conclusion that he is the source of that which is true and that which is false. He will tell us that which is true. He will tell us and warn us away from that which is false. And I, I think that kind of makes sense. So, so you need to think about how that affects you. You need to think about the implications of that decision 
and where it might lead you down the road someday, because it will make a difference in your life, makes a difference in all of our lives. So there's a huge discussion going on these days about the whole business of whether we are male or female and how that's determined. Now, that's a, that's a question of that which is true versus that which is false. And yet people seem to want to raise this issue repeatedly about, well, how do we know if we're men or if we're women? How do we define what a woman is and what a man is? We see it in all kinds of ways being lived out around us, and I don't even need to tell you some of them. You've seen them and heard about them for yourself. But here's one you may not have seen or heard about that, that has enormous consequences. And so when I say that we need to think about the implications for our beliefs, I, I'm absolutely serious about that. So I don't know if you heard the story, but there was a school near Boston, Massachusetts, where a guest presenter, a teacher was invited to present to a class of students. Now, this invited guest teacher was transgender. She was biologically female, but as she tells the story, and I'll tell you how she told the story, she turned male at age 18. So this transgender individual was invited to teach a group of kindergarten first and second graders. Now, I want you to let that sink in a little bit. That's students ages five, six, and seven, approximately. So here's a transgender teacher invited to teach a group of kindergarten, first, and second graders. Now, think about the implications of that and the implications of truth related to that, that even someone would be invited to teach them and talk about their experience and explain their experience to these children. Do any of us think that's appropriate for kids? That's one thing. And I know there's been a lot of national discussion about the bill in Florida that the governor has now signed into law. We were in another organization I work with. We're involved in that HB 1557. It was roundly criticized as the don't say gay bill. That's absolutely ridiculous. They had nothing to do with that. It was all about not sexualizing children. And it was all about keeping the kind of stuff I'm about to describe to you from happening in Florida schools. And I don't know how anybody could be opposed to to that bill because it was the right thing to do. We need to protect our, protect our children's innocence. So anyway, here's this true story from Boston, a school near Boston, Massachusetts. This transgender individual was invited to teach a group of kindergarten, first and second graders, students ages five, six, and seven. These are children. They need to have a childhood. Anyway, I could go on about that. Let's just tell the story. So she introduces herself by saying that something really cute, that, that there is something really cool and unique about her. And she says, what's really cool and unique about her is that she's transgender. Well, that got my attention anyway. I mean, yikes to say that to a group of students who don't have a clue because they're kids. Well, then she goes on to give them the explanation of what it means to be transgender based on her experience. And listen to what she says to them. If you don't think that there are implications to, to deciding what is true, this should wake you up big time. So she explains to the students that, that when a baby is born, the doctor looks at the baby and makes a guess. And yes, that's the word that was used, makes a guess about whether the baby is a boy or a girl. And based on how that baby looks, the doctor makes a guess about whether the baby is a boy or a girl. 
Now, she goes on to say that most of the time, the doctor is 100% correct. There are no issues whatsoever most of the time. But then she says, and she says this to children ages five, six, and seven. Then she says, but sometimes the doctor is wrong, makes an incorrect guess. Think about that. It's a guess, she says. Then she explains her experience. She says for her, the doctor guessed that she was a girl. And so her parents treated her like a girl. Everybody treated her like a girl. They bought her girl clothes and toys and all the things that suited girls or went along with being a girl. So all of her life growing up, that's how she was and how she was treated. But, but she says deep down, she felt like she was a boy. It's interesting how she described her feelings and notice that this is based on her choice. Her decision is based on her feelings, not on that, which is true. She described her feelings as she felt like she was wearing an itchy sweater, the kind of sweater that the longer you wear it, the worse it feels. And she said, the only way to make the itching stop for her was to tell people who she really was. So at age 18, she told her family and friends that she was really a boy. And she described that as resulting in great relief for her and that she was, and listen to this, this is what she said to these children. How old were these children? Five, six, and seven. She said, she's super proud to be transgender. Now I would think about her story here a little bit. And as it relates to what we believe to be true, you see what we base our understanding of truth on has enormous implications. So Thomas came to the conclusion that Jesus truly was who he said he was, and he proclaimed that Jesus was Lord and God. Now, if we choose to believe that Jesus is the source of truth, then that leads us to the Bible, which is the revelation of God given to us, and it becomes the source of truth validated by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So what you decide about the truth has enormous implications. Now, one of the things that we as believers, we who trust Jesus, come to the conclusion of is that early on in the early pages of Genesis, God was clear that he created people male and female. There's, there's no ambiguity about that. God created male and female. Absolutely clear as could be. So if we believe the truth as the Bible explains it, then we believe that people are male or female, and God didn't make a mistake or wasn't confused when he formed us even before our birth and when we were born as male or female. We know, based on science, that what do you know, the reality agrees with God that science tells us that we are male or female all the way down to the cellular level. And that can't be changed. That's just a, a reality, an objective fact. But if we don't choose to believe the one who is the truth, then we get all kinds of confused. And so we see all this conversation across the country, all of this stuff that goes on, all of the dialogue, all of the pushback, all of the horror stories, all of the things related to this that people are trying to, to convince themselves that 
that no, that which is true isn't true. But if we believe what the Bible says, then we know it's true. We are created male or female, and that's a good thing. And God wasn't confused about how he created us. If anybody is confused, if anybody struggles with that, it's us, not God. And if we are willing to accept the one who rose from the grave as the one who tells us the truth, then it's not complicated. But if we are not willing to accept that God tells us the truth, it becomes all kinds of complicated, and it even leads to confusing our children as young as kindergarten. I can't imagine the horror of parents who would discover this was going on. I can't imagine they would think this is the right thing to do. But from a Christian perspective, it's even clearer because God is so straightforward and honest with him, with us about that. And so you and I then have to come to grips with, how do we decide what's true? Do we base that reality on the, the testimony of Jesus, the evidence of the Bible, the reality of resurrection? Or do we decide, well, we just want it to be what we want it to be. We want it to be our truth. We want it to be what we imagine it to be. We want to define reality for ourselves. Or do we recognize that Thomas was right? Reality is defined by Jesus, who came back from the dead and who now is Lord and God. How are you going to decide? What's it going to take to convince you? You see, it, what we decide leads us in all kinds of directions. So sadly enough, this, this lady was badly confused because God didn't make a mistake. It's clear. God creates people, male and female, and he doesn't make mistakes about that. We're the ones who get confused. And so the honest and most helpful thing to say in this discussion is the truth. We are male and female. The science is without a doubt, and God has revealed it to us in no uncertain terms. And we have to decide what to believe. And just in case you're wondering, we can have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because from the beginning pages of the Bible, he told us about male and female. He made no doubt about it. But if we reject what God says, it leads us to teaching kindergarten, first and second graders, all kinds of confusion and all kinds of things that would raise doubts in their minds about who they are, who God created them to be, and what that means to their life. You see, the implications of choosing that which is true are enormous. And our world is in the grip of some of that. And we who are followers of Jesus need to help people understand that Jesus is the one who is the way the truth, and the life. Now, it also has enormous implications on a personal level. Uh, I suppose this is for all of us as well, not just a personal level, but it, it certainly touches us personally in ways that I think you'll all recognize. So going back to the story that we looked at about believing Thomas or convinced Thomas, maybe if I say that often enough, you'll agree with me. But believing Thomas in the story there contains Jesus appearing in the room with the disciples. They had gathered there, and we talked about how that was not surprising that they'd be gathered, not surprising they'd be behind a locked door, not surprising that they'd be afraid of what the Jewish authorities might be planning to do. 
And then Jesus comes and appears among them, and he says to them, peace be with you. It's an interesting greeting when we read it. It's a little bit more understandable when we come to realize that that was a common greeting in those days. Peace be with you. But it's also very important to notice the contrast there. They, they were described as they were behind the, the locked door because they feared the Jews. So they, that was a room full of fear that Jesus entered. And, and he says to them, peace be with you. A little more of the story unfolds, and he repeats that statement again. Peace to you. Peace be with you. Same sentiment. The next week, a week later, when Thomas is with them, he comes in the room again, and he says the same thing to them. He says, peace be with you. Now, what's, what's up with that? Well, yes, it's a common greeting, so Jesus would say that, but in the context of the story being told, there's much more going on than just a common greeting. It's much more than a simple thing like we might say, God bless you. Because here are a group of people who are trying to navigate the most unimaginable situation they've ever encountered. They're afraid of what might happen to them. They're amazed by the resurrection of Jesus. And he comes along and says, peace be with you. And I was reading that um, there's a lot of anxiety in our world. In fact, there are people that are suggesting that our children need to be tested for anxiety. And we've lived through a time with this pandemic that people have had a lot of fear unnecessary fear, but a lot of fear because, well, they were convinced by people who should have known better to be afraid of something they didn't need to be afraid of. And they failed to recognize, and too many of the people of God failed to recognize that God was right when he says, fear not. So here comes Jesus in the midst of this room full of fear, and he says to them, peace be with you. It's a huge contrast. It's a huge assurance. He comes to us these days and says, peace be with you. See, it's not an accident that this is repeated three times in this story. It's not, it's, it's not necessarily expected. We wouldn't necessarily expect that, but isn't it remarkable that God knows what we need to hear? Isn't it remarkable that God comes to us in our world and assures us when we need to hear the words of assurance that, that we can have peace in the midst of all of this stuff that's going on? Isn't it remarkable that when we could make a long list of reasons to be afraid, that essentially Jesus comes along and says, tear up the list, throw it away, peace be with you. And you see, that all comes back to a proper understanding of who tells us the truth. You know, if, if we believe that God tells us the truth when he says, fear not, don't be afraid, then we will not be afraid. Are there reasons to be cautious in our world? Sure, that's not what God is saying. But this idea of chronic fear is absolutely foreign to what God reveals to us. He wants us to trust him as Lord and God and not be afraid. So what are you afraid of? Can you identify that? Can you think about that? And can you imagine a world where you would put that fear aside? You know, we dread a lot of things that don't happen. We dread a lot of things because of our experience, and we dread a lot of things because we fail to come to grips with the one who is the truth and tells us the truth. So God tells us the truth. He says, fear not, so that we put fear aside. 
I'm not going to tell you that's always easy, but I can tell you from experience, it's doable. I don't know how I came to this exactly, except with the Lord's help, but I decided early on that I was not going to be afraid during this whole period of the virus. It just wasn't because I realized that God said, fear not. And I realized it wasn't going to be helpful. So I believe that God, when he says fear not, so I decided I'm not going to be afraid, I'm not afraid of the virus. I'm not reluctant to take appropriate precautions, but I'm not going to be afraid. I am going to let the peace of Christ help me navigate all of the uncertainties of life. See, that's why Thomas's declaration is so significant, because he said, my Lord and my God. And once we come to grips with the idea that we can have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, then we can lay fear aside, because it is the revelation of God in Jesus, and it is the story of the Bible, that even if the sky is falling, God is with us, and he won't abandon us. There might be circumstances I don't want to live through. There have been, likely will be more. But in the midst of all of that, I don't need to be afraid. I can trust the one who leads me through the valley of the shadow of death and restores my soul. And that's what I want for you. That's what we need. We need to have confidence in the one who knows all that's going on and says to us, in spite of all that's going on, don't be afraid. Peace be with you. So that's my parting words today. Peace be with you. I would say them a dozen times, but you've gotten the message. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. I'll see you next week.